0: It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. I'm going to start today with the Jetsons, because if you were a fan of that show, as I was, people zipping around and flying cars and everything, you know, there was a nuclear family and the little boy in the family was Elroy, and he had a dog. More specifically, he had a robot dog called Astro. Well, Amazon has just announced a robot for your home in what can only be seen as a Uh, homage to that 1960s cartoon series, the robot is called Astro. So what does Astro do if you want to uh, invest in this thing? Well, it's kind of this small thing, and it has eyes, and it zips around from room to room. It can navigate around objects. It uh, can break so it doesn't run over your dog. Uh, There's a periscope camera that can be raised or lowered to view things. Uh, Okay, so what does it do? It can deliver reminders. It can serve up uh, TV shows or podcasts. It can control smart home devices. You can give it commands. Uh, It also has security features. Uh, It it can uh, patrol your home when you're not away and flag potential intruders. I don't know exactly what it does. If it finds a potential intruder, it can listen for broken glass or smoke alarms. All right. And it's 1000 bucks, So this doesn't immediately seem to me like something that millions of Americans are going to want to run out and buy. But then again, I probably initially uh, underestimated the appeal of the uh, smart home speaker that begins with A. Uh, so that's called Astro. Uh, Jon Stewart uh, making his uh, comeback tomorrow on, quote, TV. I'm doing the air quote thing because it's not TV. I mean, it's on your phones. It's Apple Plus, Apple TV. And it's a bi-weekly show, and he's been doing some interviews, and he's basically been saying, you know, this is not going to be as funny as The Daily Show. Um, it's going to be more serious. There'll be some laughs. He's kind of downplaying expectations, is what he's doing. Uh, interview today with The New York Times. Uh, John Stewart says he's doing this just because it feels more cathartic than yelling at the screen. I mean, he's been... There's a guy who walked away at the height of his fame from The Daily Show in mean, the last six years, he's had a pretty low profile. He was going to do an animated series for HBO that never got off the ground. He did uh, produce one movie with Steve Carell, which I liked. Uh, And now he's coming back with this Apple show. Um, And what's fascinating to me, you know, in my book, Reality Show, which is basically about the rise and fall of the network evening newscast, there's a chapter on Jon Stewart, who I believe whether you like him or not, through The Daily Show and the use of videotape, had a profound effect on the, quote, serious news business. And so the interviewer asked Stuart, well, uh, how are you going to decide what topics to cover? Because the first one apparently is about gun control. And one of the things I noted in my book was that essentially they would have these meetings and um, Stuart would talk about whatever he was pissed off about. And they would encourage him to vent uh, his rage uh, and then often that would kind of congeal into a segment for the show. So he says in this interview that the new show is going, to, which is called "The Problem with John Stewart." Uh, it's annoyance-based. We'll come in and go, you know what's driving me crazy right now, and that spurs a discussion. So it's the same sort of technique. Uh, he was asked, "Is this about advocacy?" Because this is kind of sounds more like it's channeling the John Stewart who fought uh, to his credit. Uh, for the 9-11 responders and not getting the aid that they should have gotten from Congress. And um, Stewart says, maybe not advocacy as much as amplification. That seems a worthwhile use of the privilege of television. It's a uniquely, oddly, arrogant privilege. Does it feel strange to be doing this show in a TV landscape that's kind of oversaturated with daily show type programs? That's the reporter asked that question. Because if you look at it, the people who came of age in The Daily Show, you got John Oliver was on that show. He's got his own HBO show. You have Samantha B, She's got her own show. Others like, you know, Jason Zudakis and others have gone on uh, to greater things. Uh, and 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 Stewart says, look, all viewing universes are stuffed to the gills. If you begin to view what you make as a function of external processes whether it's other shows that traffic in a similar sensibility or internet commentary, uh, I think you can't win because you won't create something that's authentic. Imagine saying to someone who plays guitar, a lot of guitarists out there, man. There's no question, but this is a song I want to sing. So we'll see how the music goes. All right, story number one, the uh, very newsworthy hearing yesterday uh, with the nation's top military officials, General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Uh, The head of CENTCOM command, uh, Ken McKenzie, and Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, all uh, testifying at a Senate hearing that made a lot of news. It wasn't one of these circus hearings where, you know, because it's a Democratic administration, the Democrats, you know, totally rolled over. I mean, they defended Biden to some extent, but basically asked substantive questions, too, about Afghanistan. So. The news here is, and I have a column on, uh, today on this on Fox.com, FoxNews.com, if you want to look at it. Uh, these uh, top generals acknowledging they had privately urged President Joe Biden to keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, uh, saying that the US, complete U.S. withdrawal would cause the collapse of the Afghan army and a Taliban takeover, which, of course, is exactly what happened. Uh, Lloyd Dawson said the input was received by the president. Milley says, well, I can't discuss exactly what I said, but here's what I think, and so forth. And here's the problem. Uh, last month, Joe Biden was interviewed by ABC. He was asked, did anybody uh, at the Pentagon say uh, that you shouldn't do this withdrawal? And the president said, and it's on video, no one said that to me that I can recall. So that by itself creates a serious credibility problem. Now let me hasten to add this. Joe Biden, like any president, has every right to overrule his generals. I mean, over the years, generals always want more troops, more money, more time um, to win wars in the modern era that increasingly are unwinnable. So he's the president, he's the elected leader of the land. He can make the decision that the generals are wrong and he is right. But what he can't do is claim to have the support of the generals and the Pentagon, when in fact, they made a very different recommendation. And so he now has to own that. And as a result of this testimony, I think that he does. A Republican senator uh, from Alaska, Dan Sullivan, completely went off saying there were dramatic, obvious falsehoods uh, uh, uttered by the president on this. And there was a lot, too, on uh, the Woodward Costa book, uh, because obviously Millie on the hot seat for the first time, was asked about The back channel calls to China, as well as the meeting where he asked every top member of his defense team, of his military team, I should say, uh, do you understand I need to be included in any nuclear launch decision? So Milley, of course, is trying to say this is routine, this is no big deal. And in the course of doing that, he describes with these calls, this is where he called China's top official, as revealed in the book Peril, uh, top military man, I should say, and said, the U.S. is not going to attack you, everything's calm, everything's steady, it may look messy, we have no plans to attack. You know, trying to de-escalate because, according to the book, he was worried about Donald Trump's, what he viewed as Donald Trump's mental decline. Although, uh, at the hearing on the Hill yesterday, he said that in that conversation with Nancy Pelosi, which we know took place because the Woodward guys had a transcript, uh, the question of President Trump's mental stability came up, and he, he says... He told the House Speaker, uh, I'm not qualified to evaluate the president's mental stability. But on the China calls, Milley says, well, I coordinated these calls before and after with the then defense secretary, Mark Esper. When Trump fired Esper, he says he informed uh, his successor, Chris Miller, about the calls and their staffs. And he says he briefed White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Um, The quote here is, at no time was I attempting to change or influence the process, usurp authority, or insert myself in the chain of command. Now, that is certainly in tone a different kind of picture, I think than painted in peril. If you go through the fine print in in the Woodward Costa book, you find that, yes, Millie told other people, but I didn't know he was briefing the White House. I didn't know he was briefing and coordinating with and getting advance approval from the guys who were running the Pentagon. It just makes it seem less like he was going rogue than is suggested by the book. It made it seem uh, less that he was doing this Uh, as a a rogue military man completely on his own if he was keeping the chain of command apprised. But that, of course, would make for a less dramatic book. Now, Woodward and Costa were on uh, CNN yesterday, and Woodward would say, all the people who have accused General Milley uh, of doing anything improper, uh, they're going to owe him an apology when this all comes out. Uh, So that was sort of the subtext of the hearing. So here's the Washington Post write-up today. Pentagon leaders who presided over the uh, Afghan war's conclusion said they had predicted Kabul's government and its military would collapse after the U.S. departure, but they refused to fault President Biden for the withdrawal. Of course they did. You know, he's the commander-in-chief. They said it was a strategic failure. Then there was this phrase that they kept using about, well, it was logistical success. I think it was Lloyd Austin, but a strategic failure. In other words, we lost the war, but, man, we... uh, so here's Milley saying, my belief was we should keep at least 2,500 American troops in Afghanistan, that an accelerated withdrawal, he testified, risked losing the substantial gains made over the 20 years, 20 years of fighting in Afghanistan. Um, well, one of the, uh, Tom Cotton said, why didn't you resign in protest? And that got Milley's back a little bit. He said, the prospect of resigning would have been an incredible act of political defiance, be unfathomable. He said Biden was under no obligation to take the advice of the generals. This country, said General Milley, doesn't want generals figuring out what orders we are going to accept. That's not our job. He invoked his father. He said my father, my dad, didn't have the option of resigning at Iwo Jima. So obviously he comes from a family with a long military tradition. Um, I guess they went on to say, there was also a question about Bagram Air Force Base. Bagram areas. Why did you close it before the evacuation and withdrawal? And they acknowledged that at least one of them or more than one of them said that they had recommended against closing Bagram. And I know there's an argument about what Bagram would have been hard to defend. Billy um, said, look, there's a lot of lessons we can learn here. When you pull out contractors, you pull troops. That contributed to the rapid collapse. They all said they expected the Taliban to take over by the fall, just not in 11 or so days. So there was a lot, you know, they were doing uh, their job and testifying about it. Uh, Milley was asked, well, has this damaged U.S. credibility around the world? And he tried to be diplomatic and he said, well... You know, uh, certainly a lot of people are reviewing their relations with the U.S., and he said this is very very State Department-like. Damage is one word that could be used. Well, there has been a lot of damage. Let me move on now to number two. Uh, You know, there's been so much after the Arizona audit, critics are calling it defrauded, uh, which did not find hard evidence of widespread fraud in Arizona. In fact, as, as you know, the cyber ninjas said that Biden should have gotten 99 more votes, Trump should have gotten 261 fewer votes, but nevertheless, a whole lot of people feel like, oh, no, no, it was terrible, they found all this potential fraud, it just shows the election was rigged. Okay, so there's been so much focus in the media, um, and certainly uh, by liberal commentators, left leaning outlets on the Voting Rights Act, and could Trump steal the next election, and could all these uh, state legislatures and Republican governors Uh, put in place procedures to do what they could not do in 2020, which was certify that that, uh, Trump, if he runs again in 2024, had won even if he doesn't win, even if, uh, you know, just on the basis of claims of fraud. But now the debate is shifting, and the debate is shifting just a little bit because, and I say this as a journalistic observation because I'm not partisan for either side, Joe Biden is in deep trouble. He's having a had a lousy few weeks. Afghanistan, the COVID resurgence, the absolute travesty of a mess at the border with the Haitian migrants, and now his inability at least until now we'll talk about this in a few moments to to get his own party to agree on these big multi-trillion dollar spending deals. So David Frum in The Atlantic, former Bush White House speechwriter says, are constitutionally committed Americans doing all they can to prevent Donald Trump from winning the 2024 election fair and square, the Biden administration's numbers are slumping. He says, opening the way for Republican gains in 2022—that's beyond dispute—and the return of the twice impeached ex-president as a presidential nominee. The schemes and machinations of the pro-Trump movement are part of the story, but if we're headed toward a crisis of the republic, the mistakes and misfortunes of the anti-Trump coalition deserve a mention as well. Uh, he goes on to say, yes, you know, this is, both sides don't do it, and it's only the Trump people and Trump himself who are pushing the big lie, and so forth and so on. But you have to have one side show that it can govern successfully. From rights, the troubles of the Biden administration could empower Senate, House, and state Republicans to restore Donald Trump to office. Uh, He talks about various different issues. Just to give you one example, he talks about 30,000 migrants who showed up in Del Rio, Texas. Uh, Of those, 12,000 have been admitted into the U.S. Another 5,000 are still having their cases heard. Some 10,000 have been turned away. From a political point of view, says from, this is the worst of all possible worlds for Biden. Continuing images of chaos, deepening anger among immigration-friendly Democrats, intensifying feelings of loss of control in the border communities, all with no plan to end the crisis before Election Day 2022, not to mention twenty-four. So that's just one example where he says basically Biden's screwing up. Those aghast at Republican voter suppression should not fall for the mistaken idea that protecting voting rights will by itself guarantee Democratic wins. In 2022, the Republicans' job will be easier than two years before, They won't be burdened by a Trump incumbency that alienated many historically Republican voters. Instead, they can try to prolong the pandemic and then benefit from the dissatisfactions they helped cause. Uh, He says that on the ballot next year, inflation, borders, crime. If the Biden administration can't deliver better on those issues, Trump and his enablers will be just as happy to scoop power by default as to grab it by stealth or force. So I think that's, uh, and other people are now starting to write this too, and I think that's fair to look at, you know, what if Donald Trump and the Republicans can win these elections fair and square because the Biden administration is seen as having failed. All right, number three, Uh, I don't often get down in the weeds about these Capitol Hill battles over these infrastructure and so forth bills, but it is such a calamity right now that it really is very telling about the state of the Democratic Party and the state of the president. So, uh, New York Times, among others, has has a piece saying today, business groups and some Senate Republicans, who are at odds with Republican leaders in the House, have mounted an all-out drive to secure GOP votes for the bipartisan infrastructure bill which is supposed to be voted on tomorrow except if nancy pelosi can't she'll pull it again if she can't get the votes so here's the deal you have the five you know it's a trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill 19 republican senators voted for this including mcconnell it's an extraordinary achievement for biden but he can't get it through why because it's being held hostage by house liberals in the aoc wing to this three and a half trillion dollar Democrat-only bill that's got everything. It's got expanding Medicare, climate change, social safety net, free pre-K, all this stuff. But they can't get it through the Senate because of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. So Pelosi can only lose three Democrats on the bill. Now, she might be able to get, especially with these business groups backing the infrastructure bill, she might be able to get as many as 20 Republican votes. According to the Times, and then she could lose 20 Democratic votes and still squeak this thing through. Uh, she broke her pledge to the progressives to tie the two together, which is always a dumb idea. Like you take the win, right? You've got 69 Senate votes. You take the win, you get a trillion dollars, actually about 550 billion in new spending. Which, by the way, in and of itself, as this Time story points out. 110 billion for roads, 65 billion to expand high-speed internet access, uh, 25 billion for airports, more funding, most funding for Amtrak since it was created in 1971. Those are big wins. You take that, and then you go back and you fight for more. But the progressives say, well, if we give in on this, we lose our leverage. Um, so this is the mess that the Democrats find themselves in. And the progressives are talking tough because they know they can tank this thing. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, uh, part of the squad. Let me be clear, bringing the so-called bipartisan infrastructure plan to a vote without the Build Back Better Act at the same time is a betrayal. So what's Joe Biden doing? You know, he's not really this great uh, LBJ-style arm twister. He's meeting behind closed doors. He met three times yesterday at the White House with Kristen Cinema, the senator from Arizona, and once with Joe Manchin. Canceled a trip to Chicago that he was going to take today to try to get this done. Um, so here's Bernie saying, well, you know, if we had a framework uh, for the three and a half trillion and Manchin and Cinema were in agreement with the framework and we were just working out the details, that one thing, but we're not there yet. It's premature right now to be passing the infrastructure bill, says Bernie. Axios has an interesting take on this. Uh, saying, quoting one official with firsthand knowledge of the president's mindset, says of Biden, he's not going to beg. His view is you're Democrats and you're with your president or you're not. Well, I get that. And Biden, you know, he's a Senate guy, 36 years in the Senate. So He's not going to, he's going to say, look, our party is on the line. You've got to come up with a compromise. He thinks that Pelosi will deliver. He's from a generation of politicians from whom party loyalty is automatic. That's far from the case today when everybody is their own party. Uh, his shape, his approach is shaped in part by his 36 years as a senator, a sense that presidents should demand outcomes rather than details. And, you know, um, he is now a kind of a centrist in the Democratic Party, but he's thrown in his lot with the progressives because he's made a lot of promises to them. So his approach is, according to Axios, let Pelosi and Bernie work it out. Politico has a piece saying, Joe Biden knows the ways to progressives' hearts, but he's still trying to figure out what makes Manchin and Cinema tick. Here's a quote from uh, another source familiar with the White House thinking. It's really hard for the White House to issue anything when you have members of the caucus who won't say what it wants. You can't start coming up with a bill when you don't know what the number is. So obviously he's saying to Cinema and Manchin, Give us your bottom line, and let me see if I can sell it. Let's see if it's a compromise here. I mean, we just keep hearing from them. They're not happy, they're not happy, they're not happy. I don't know. National Review has a piece titled, Joe Biden, Nowhere Man. And this piece says it's not so much about Biden's uh, persuasive abilities or his personal flaws. You know, he could be given speeches that would so move the country that that would increase pressure. Usually you do that to pressure the other party, not your own party. National Review says... The problem is Biden got elected because the corporate Democrats decided he was the best shot to beat um, Trump. And um, he got elected, you know, and he's kind of staffed his administration with all these liberal types. And yet the, the, the trillions of dollars being pushed by the left uh, kind of runs counter to the working class voters whose support he needed to win Michigan, to win Wisconsin, to win Pennsylvania. Remember, that's how Trump beat Hillary in those three states. He won them back. But what are they doing for working class people? Instead, National views take is, you know, their primary passions of the left are climate change, gender fluidity, and systemic racism. It basically, is not exactly what, you know, lunch bucket Democrats want to hear. In other words, it's just a contradiction between these two wings in the party. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, let me move on to number four. Um, Fascinating battle in the National Basketball Association. 90% of NBA players are fully vaccinated. It's a lot higher than the country as a whole. But some of the big stars in the league are still refusing to get the shot, and they're speaking out. Brooklyn Nets star Kylie Irving, he's the vice president of the Players Union. By the way, the Players Union wouldn't agree to this mandate. He says he's willing, he could miss all of the Nets home team games because New York City has an indoor vaccine mandate. You can't go in there. Please respect my privacy. Irving told reporters in a Zoom meeting the other day. Uh, here in D.C., Washington Wizards star Bradley Beal says he's not vaccinated. He questioned the vaccination's effectiveness. He said to reporters, uh, well, how come we have to get these boosters? It's funny that it only reduces your chances of going to the hospital. It doesn't eliminate anybody from getting COVID, right? Yeah, but it eliminates your chance of dying. If you get COVID and you're vaccinated, you know, it's not pleasant. Nobody's saying it is. But you're so much less likely statistically, overwhelmingly less likely to be hospitalized. Karim Abdul-Jabbar said the league should mandate vaccinations. But here's the media angle. There's another player for the Orlando Magic, Jonathan Isaac. And he was quoted in Rolling Stone as ah, he's refusing to get the vaccine for all kinds of reasons. And he, held, uh, he went to the media day for the Orlando Magic and he said Rolling Stone was wrong. He said, it's not that I'm refusing to get the vaccine because I've studied black history or I was watching Trump press conferences. He says he was badly misrepresented by the Rolling Stone piece. He said, because of that, I can understand anyone who says they don't transparently or overtly trust the media. Jonathan Isaac says, I'm not anti-vax. I'm not anti medicine. I'm not anti science. I didn't come to my current vaccination status by studying black history or watching Donald Trump press conferences. I'm grateful I live in a society where vaccines are possible and we can protect ourselves. He goes on to say the reason he hasn't gotten the vaccine is that he had COVID. And he feels like, given his age, given his fitness, the fact that he's got some antibodies from having had the disease, uh, he's a little worried about side effects, that he doesn't need it. It's not a crazy stance. But Unlike the NFL, which is fining players and others for not getting the vaccine, which is telling teams you may forfeit games if everybody on your team is not vaccinated, the NBA is taking a more cooperative approach. So, as I said, 90% vaccination rate, that's good. But when you have some of the biggest stars, by the way, LeBron got vaccinated, but he doesn't want to speak out. He thinks everybody should make their own decision. It's kind of like a microcosm of the debate in the country as a whole. So, for example, New York... uh, the new governor, Kathy Hogel, about to fire a bunch of healthcare workers and hospital workers who won't get the vaccine. Uh, then how do you replace them? She's calling the National Guard, but how do you replace them on a more permanent basis? So it's just fascinating because of the high profile of the NBA, the way this is playing out. And finally, number five, you may not care about Australia, but you should care about this as a media issue. So today, CNN took the step of disabling its Facebook pages in Australia. Now, why would CNN do that? It just took its Facebook pages down in a pretty significant market. It was because there was an Australian court ruling that made media companies liable for defamatory comments Posted by users. So, you know, comments is a big part of the web. You know, people love to post comments. And as you know, they get pretty toxic. So what most major news organizations do is they have moderators that go in. And obviously it's hard to keep up if you've got, you know, hundreds and thousands and thousands of comments. Anybody who's saying something that is uh, absolutely libelous, defamatory, um, false. Uh, and when you get into false, it can be a slippery slope. But I think it's long been understood, at least in the American court system, that it's one thing if CNN or Fox or the New York Times or anybody else uh, publishes articles that are found to be libelous or defamatory or false, because then people can sue and there's a right. And of course you have editors that look at them and at least try to make sure that defamatory material is not published. But it's hard to police, and some organizations have just, because it's so labor intensive, just disabled comments. You can't comment. People don't like that, but it's a self protective move. So, the Wall Street Journal, which first reported this, says that CNN asked Facebook if Mark Zuckerberg's company would help news organizations disable the comments on its pages, at least in Australia, so it could avoid any legal risk. Facebook declined to craft a blanket disable feature, one that all news organizations could use. Instead, saying it would help CNN disable comments on posts one by one. Well, one by one may not cut it, because if you miss some, or what if one, you don't get to it for 24 hours? Could CNN still be sued over what some viewer or user of Facebook says? I mean, you could see where it kind of strikes at the heart of free expression. So here's the CNN statement. We are disappointed that Facebook once again has failed to ensure its platform is a place for credible journalism and productive dialogue around current events among its users. So I don't understand. Like Facebook is supposed to be working with news organizations. After all, if, you, if every news organization did what CNN just did in Australia and said, we're out of here as far as Facebook is concerned, It would hurt them because Facebook is a very valuable platform, as is Twitter, as is Instagram and and others, as is TikTok, by the way, to promote your brand and to reach people who don't necessarily watch your network. Um, But Facebook, you know, gets an extraordinary amount of traffic, free content, by and large, from all of the news organizations, not just television, Washington Post, New York Times, HuffPost, you name it that have Facebook pages or whose content is linked to on Facebook. Because that's how you get this debate going and people can click on the links and, you know, everybody's happy. But everybody's not happy if you can be sued over the comments, which, you know, you can have the most vigorous moderation effort in the world, and Facebook itself has struggled with this, and not catch everything. It's just, you know, it's overwhelming given the billions of people who use Facebook around the globe. So Facebook wouldn't play ball. And it says, okay, we're out of here. Well, could this spread to the U.S.? Uh, I don't think you'd have a court ruling in the U.S. under the First Amendment, as you did in Australia. But nevertheless, it raises those troubling questions about what are social media liable for in terms of users? Because, you know, Facebook and Twitter continue to cling to this fiction. Well, we're just like the electric company. We put this stuff out there. People say what they want. You know, well, yeah, we'll take off the most egregious hate speech and anti-Semitic stuff and Russian disinformation. But basically, it's your toy. You play with it. We're not responsible. Well, you are responsible. And you've done a lousy job. And everybody knows that. That's why people left and right are unhappy with these social media platforms. Now you have news organizations, in this case CNN, unhappy with what Facebook is doing. Well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, I'd appreciate uh, a subscription if you have a moment. If you're not already getting Media Buzz Meter. Apple iTunes is a good place to get it, or we talked earlier about Amazon. Maybe you can even get it on that robot if you buy that little robot that goes around your house. You can say, get me Media Buzzbeater. As for me, have a great day. Back here tomorrow with even more beater